to listen, not so much to remember anything, but to listen in a way that reflects or considers or at best is a reminder of something that you already know. And if it seems valuable, then let it remind you. And if it seems off base, discard it, let it go. I want to do a bit of a classic teaching tonight, but in a slightly non-classic way, so we'll see how it goes. Um, And to start with, or continue as we have in some recent weeks, just with a sense of mystery. Um, And I don't want to overuse the word here because I've been talking about it a lot. But mostly that's because it is. (laughs) You have a trillion cells in your body, and you have ten times more bacteria cells than regular cells. You are, as my friend Wes Nisker likes to say, a walking feedlot for bacteria, basically. (laughs) You know? And then the DNA that's woven into every cell in your body, which also there's there's a little mitochondria, which might have been some other organism that got its way into the middle of every one of your cells, um, that unwound this this magic molecule uh, of dioxyribonucleic acid that carries, um, like a hologram, this incredible amount of information about what it is to be a physical human being or or a mammal. How does that come about? Nobody has a clue, really. Or photosynthesis, the fact that these beautiful grasses and trees and so forth take sunlight and turn it into sugar. I mean, that's a very cool thing to turn light into sugar. I mean, it's one thing for a cow to turn grass into milk, all right? That's also kind of magic, right? But to turn light into sugar, and then you live on it. Basically, that's, that's the, you know, in d- various ways. That's how you live in this human incarnation. Um, you stuff dead plants and animals in this hole at the top part of the body and glug them down through the tube, right? Three or four times a day. And they're mostly made of complex, you know, sugars and proteins that come from sunlight. How'd you get in there? You know, who are you? Meanwhile, our little planet, now there's, thanks to the Kepler, you know, vision of looking for planets just at nearby stars, finding hundreds of planets, which means, of course, there are billions out there and all kinds of likely weird creatures who think the same of you, you know. Um, Really wild, and the galaxies are turning. So here we are. You got a human incarnation don't quite know how you got here, but you're here, right? You've got a family. Sometimes they were good. Often they're more like the nuclear families that we talk about. Um, And the question then is how to use this incarnation wisely or how to live wisely now that you're here and that you have the experience of being a human being. And the point of the teachings that you encounter from the Buddhist tradition isn't to make you a Buddhist. Spare your friends and family that. Um, It is at best to make you a Buddha or to remind you of your Buddha nature. 
And in that way, meditation isn't so much a self-improvement project um, as it is an invitation to see with clarity, to quiet the mind, to open the heart, to pay attention to this mystery and discover the laws of human incarnation and life so that you can then live in a way that is both wise and brings benefit to yourself and others. And the Buddha said, I really teach just one thing. I teach suffering or difficulty and the release from it, happiness. Um, It's actually two things, but he called it one. I don't know why. But anyway, he teaches the transformation of suffering into happiness or joy. Um, And the Buddhist texts begin with an invitation. They start with the phrase, certain texts anyway, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones of the Buddhas, do not forget who you really are. You who are born into this human body but have a spirit of dignity and wakefulness. Every young child comes in with this. Do not forget this. So a story for you. It's evening time, time for stories. Once upon a time, some long time ago, there was a small kingdom that came to have um, some economic hard times, a bad recession turning into a depression and a considerable amount of national debt um, and so forth. And the only way out of this great financial crisis for the king and queen, who had a beautiful daughter, princess, was to marry her off to someone rather wealthy, bring them into the family. As marriage used to be an economic arrangement a lot, maybe it still is a bit, but it was that especially. It happened, however, that the most eligible billionaire in the kingdom by far, with the greatest resources of jewels and gold and so forth, was also a dragon. Now, mom was a little bit worried about marrying her lovely princess daughter off to the dragon. Dragons have claws and fire and all those things and and sometimes rather difficult temperaments. But dad was insistent, you know, we need the money, basically. (laughs) So anyway, as these stories go, the princess was betrothed to the dragon. And um, she became rather concerned. It's okay in those days to want to follow the wishes of your parents and have an arranged marriage, but this seemed like it was going a little far. Um, And she got really worried. So she went out into the countryside, quietly left the palace, and began to ask around to see if anybody knew anything about dragons, really. And there was, as there always is, somewhere out in the hut there, past one of the villages, an old wise woman. And they said, go see her. There she was, the old wise woman who'd been around. Yeah, dragons. Baby, I've seen dragons. I know about them. But what should I do? I'm going to be marrying this dragon, you know. She said, I, have a sp- uh, I-, I can help you. I can help you, my daughter. And you know, the old wise woman, 
They look at the young women who come and they feel them as daughters because they are their daughters. You can? She said, yes. She said, what is, your, what is your big concern? She said, well, my first concern is wedding night. <laughs> Could we like start with that, right? So she said, all right, here's what you have to do. I want you to buy 10 wedding gowns. And here's my instructions. And she gave her some special instructions. So she goes back. She buys her wedding gowns. They make the big celebration. The dragon comes. You know, the other nobles of the kingdom come. There's this great big wedding. And after the wedding is over, they go back to the bridal chamber to spend the night. And uh, the princess sits on the edge of the bed. And the dragon says, well, shall we? And she says, yes, my dear, addressing her dragon, my dear dragon, um, but I have a small request to make of you. Uh, It seems important before we have any conjugal bliss that um, we undress. And the dragon said, oh, good idea. And she said, my request is this, that when I take off a gown, you also remove a gown or something that you're wearing. And the dragon thinking happily, all right, I'll do that. (laughs) So she takes off one gown. And the dragon, having relatives in the Naga and Snake Kingdom, removes one outer layer of skin. Not a problem, really, you know. Snakes know how to shed skin, and so do dragons. Fine, here we are, okay, baby. Then he looks and he says, oh, you're still wearing a wedding gown, only it's changed color. She said, oh, that's my next undergown. And then she takes that off. And she says, your turn. And he takes off another layer of skin. And then she takes off another gown. And he takes off another layer of skin. She takes off another gown. She's working on, you know, five or six now. And now he's down to where he actually has to use his claws to get the under layers off. And it's ripping things off, and it's very painful. And then she takes off another one. She says, I thought you were a dragon, my courageous new husband, little by little, taunting him and encouraging him. And an interesting thing happens. As she gets to gown number six and seven and eight, and he pulls more and more off, his form begins to change, as happens in such fairy tales. And he looks less and less dragon-like and more and more human. And by the time he, she takes off her tenth gown, he pulls off the last layer and, of course, outsteps or outreveals himself as this handsome prince who says, I've been enchanted as a dragon and I needed someone to teach me how to release the enchantment. And by your taking off your gowns, you showed me the way as well. And We'll leave them in their bedchamber <laughs> with your imagination. So there are a few lessons from this story. The first one is that it is possible for us to become enchanted and to have a kind of outer layer of personality and defenses and protection and all the things that we needed as we grew up to take care of ourselves. But in doing so, 
to forget our original nature, our Buddha nature, our original innocence and beauty and goodness. Um, in Bali, I think I said this in one of these recent weeks, um, they say that the people who are closest to the gods are little children and infants who come and they don't even let them touch the earth for the first six months. They hold them for six months and then there's this ritual when they're finally ready to touch their feet to the earth are little infants the closest to the gods, and very old people, those coming in and those going back. And the people farthest from the gods are middle-aged people with mortgages, basically. <laughs> you understand, right? So there is a way in which we get enchanted, if you will, by the world, by its needs, by what you're supposed to be, by the obligations you have by all the shoulds and the ambitions and the you know um, expectations around you and you forget who you really are. Another lesson from the story is that opening or returning to your original nature can sometimes be difficult. And I had a couple of interviews this last weekend, one for Russian television, their psychology spiritual channel, and one for French magazine and TV, and they both ask, is meditation easy? And I said, no. I said, it's not that hard, but it's like saying, is playing piano easy? You have to take lessons and learn to do it, and then you can make beautiful music, but it's not like, oh, I'm going to sit down and everything's fine. When you sit to meditate, you could even see it tonight, and you start to get quiet, the unfinished business of the heart shows itself. If you have tears that you haven't grieved or conflict in your life or longing or something unfinished, you get quiet and it shows itself or the tensions of the bodies appear or the traditional image of the monkey mind. Did anyone notice the monkey tonight? And so you see the busyness and the plans and remembering and self-judgment and criticism and you know restlessness and loneliness and sleepiness and all the kind of that kind of stuff. Um, and boredom. Gandhi called it blessed monotony, right? <laughs> Meditation. But like the dragon, if we want to get back to ourself, we actually have to go through those layers that we've run away from, that kept us. Because, you know, otherwise, if you're home and you feel a little lonely or bored or restless or tension in your body, saying, what do you do? Open the refrigerator, right? And go online, something else to distract yourself. So that's why it's not so easy. You and the dragon. Whole personality. Then, like the dragon, it also turns out that it's important for most people to have help. That it's hard to do alone, as I like to quote my friend Annie Lamott, who wrote, My mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. You know. So it's good to have somebody else with you who has faced their loneliness or fear or restlessness or boredom or whatever, and who says, you can do this. And underneath this and around this is a space of awareness, loving awareness that we've been training in, mindfulness, that can hold and allow all of this with compassion. And you discover that these things are not only workable, but they're not really who you are. So, next story. See how far we get tonight. Ooh, I don't know. Um, next story. 
I was teaching in the East Coast in Massachusetts, lived there for many years at our center in Barrie. And there was a woman who used to come and practice, she and her husband, and her husband was a physician. And then he got uh, diagnosed with metastatic cancer. It had already spread. It was very difficult. Medical community, he was treated all these people. He was really beloved. And so everybody went and gave them gifts and tried to he heal him and so forth. Um, but it didn't succeed in preventing his death. And he died. Um, and after he died, because he was very much involved in the spiritual community in Western Massachusetts, as well as the healing community, his wife and partner um, received visits and calls from the different spiritual teachers they were connected with. And one day, she received a call from this Tibetan Lama that was living out in Western Mass who said, you know, I've been tracking the spirit of Richard, your husband, and um, through all the bardo, and, um, you know, he's now in this, the bardo of green light, and this is happening, and he's just fine. And she felt really good. Okay, somebody's kind of tracking where he is, if you believe in this or whatever. Then she got a phone call, had a conversation with a Sufi teacher, that she loved a lot. And he said, you know, I was doing my deep meditation and I had this great vision and I realized Richard is already in the womb of a woman in Washington, D.C. He's going to be born this time as a, a girl and so forth. This was a little confusing to her. So she went and talked to this other spiritual teacher that lived nearby that had been very close to them. And before she could even ask him, he said, oh, I'm so glad you came. He was a teacher of mystical Christianity, he said, Richard is with the ascended masters. I've had this whole vision and it's luminous and golden and there he is and so forth. She was a little bit dismayed. Well, you know, where is he? <laughs> so she came and asked me, which was a problem. But fortunately, I didn't try to answer her. I said, you know, these are all someone else's idea or vision. They might or might not be true. But what's more important at this moment, and maybe more deeply for you, is if I ask you, what do you know? You know, forget the ascended masters or the bardo tudol and all the Tibetan teachings or the Sufi teachings. Um, because all that's confusing when you think about it. What do you know that's absolutely true in your own heart, in spiritual life, um, that even if, you know, the Buddha and the Ascended Masters and the, you know, the Lamas and, and mystics would say, nah, you'd say, yes, it is. I know this to be true. What is it that's in your deep experience? And I remember being with Brother David Stendelrast, who's a wonderful um, Cistercian monk, now in his 80s, and we were teaching together, and at some point he raised a question, he said, um, by whose authority um, did Jesus teach? And kind of an interesting question. Um, and then people had all their hands up in their conjectures, 
And he said, let me tell you, he said, it was um, in this way, and he began to recite a variety of parables, the parable of the lost sheep, or the parable of the mustard seed that's so tiny and turns into the great tree, or the parable of the faithful servant. And with each one, he began with the phrase, who among us doesn't know about a lost sheep? Who among us doesn't know about the mustard seed? Who among us doesn't know the beauty of the lilies of the field that do not toil? And the authority that Jesus taught was the authority of the heart of wisdom that's there in every being that he was touching. So what do you know, independent of all, I mean, you go in the bookstore and it could drive you crazy, right? (laughs) It's just like, where do I start? And not only that, they're contradictory. What do you know that you really know is true for human incarnation? Everything changes, right? Birth and death and gain and loss and pleasure and pain. That it's dualistic. To be incarnated in the human body, there is night and day, and there is praise and blame, and there's sweet and sour. Anybody not have this? Joy and sorrow? That we're, it's woven out of the opposites, and it's constantly changing. That you do know, don't you? Maybe you also recognize that whatever opinion you have, there is another somewhere else, right? That opinions are just opinions. They're not the truth, right? Or maybe you know that you're not separate from the rest of the world. Maybe you really know that, that every breath you take, which has the molecules that drifted across Mauna Loa on their way across the Pacific Ocean, some that came up from the Amazon rainforest or the Arctic, or you know that, um, and as I I actually worked out the numbers. I took Avogadro's number because I was curious whether it's really true or not, but it is. Um, I read it somewhere. The likelihood that in one inhalation there will be uh, at least a single molecule of Julius Caesar's dying breath (laughs) is 99 out of 100. And there's so many molecules in a liter of, of air that when it's dispersed in the atmosphere so many cubic kilometers and so forth, Julius Caesar is us. It's part of us. So you are interdependent. Maybe you are coming up with a couple other things that you know, that even if somebody said, nah, some great spiritual authority, you say, yeah, things change. And there is a beginning in birth and death and joy and sorrow. Things are built out of opposites and so forth. So when we meditate, yes, there is a way of quieting the mind, releasing stress, coming back to open the heart and become more present for our own life in a wise way. There is also an opening from the small sense of self, go back to this dragon, the sense of separateness, which is fine, we need it, but it's not the whole story. An opening from the separate sense of self, it's sometimes called the body of fear, to feel the connection with all of life. And it changes us when we do. And this isn't some philosophy or something you're supposed to do. When people come on retreat or they practice meditation over time, 
if you bring clarity and openness and a kind of courage, because it's not that easy for the dragon to do this, to examine your experience closely, when you drop more deeply into what does it mean to be alive, you discover you are what the Buddha called five rivers, a river of sense sense experiences that's changing sights and sounds and tastes and smells and sensations. And they're always changing. The ineluctable modality was the phrase of James Joyce. The hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, that river is always changing, isn't it? Then there's the river of feelings. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. But I have this list, I talked about it last week, of 500 feelings. You know, antsy and addled and apoplectic and amorous and argumentative. And that starts with A and then it goes all the way down to Z, zany and, you know. um, And there's so many different feelings. And there's a river of them and they're always changing. So river of sensations and sense experience, river of feelings. River of perceptions, in which we see things and say, oh, that's a tree, a bird, a bay tree, a bicycle. We have these learned perceptions of seeing things, and they keep changing. A river of thoughts, and all you have to do is sit for about one minute, close your eyes, and the river of thoughts, the mind secretes thoughts the way the salivary gland secretes saliva. It just does. And you see these picture and word thoughts just kind of floating by. Yes? And then the river of consciousness. So this is what makes up human incarnation. Now we've dropped below the content of it. Oh, okay, he did or she did or I have to go to work or take care of my family or do this or that. We're now down to looking at the basics of what it means to be a human being. When meditation gets quieter, what starts to happen Sometimes you can do a practice of scanning through the body and what feels like a solid body at first becomes a field of tingles and vibrations and the solidity starts to dissolve with close attention. Or you begin to notice your thoughts and the more you can count your thoughts, the more you look at your thoughts, the more ephemeral they are. You see the river of them. Or you pay attention to feelings and they start to see how they change. Or you pay attention moment by moment, just to experience itself. And the more present and concentrated you get, it becomes like pixels on a screen. And there's these experiences on retreats and deep meditation where you get very quiet. And whatever you look at is not solid anymore, but it starts to kind of dissolve into little grains of experience. Colors and lights become pixelated and sounds become vibrations and the body isn't solid. Um, And what seems to be in our ordinary consciousness all fixed and solid shows itself in reality to be a flow. Or sometimes you meditate and you make your attention like the sky, vast and open, or you do a loving-kindness practice that connects you with all. And all these ways that I'm just describing, they start to dissolve the sense of separateness and solidity. You get quiet enough that you realize that you're not solid, you are a process. It's true. And you start to see it more clearly. Now the process of 
being incarnate, when you look in this deeper level, has three or four fundamental qualities to it, the understanding of which helps you live wisely. One of these qualities is this quality of change. W.S. Merwin, who was one of our National Poet Laureates, uh, a few years ago writes, Little breath, breathe me gently, row me gently, for I am a river I am learning to cross. And so you sit quietly and feel your breath, breathe itself and interbreathe with the trees and the Amazon and the nuclear reactor in Fukushima, just in case you haven't noticed, and you know the chemical weapons in Syria that we'll get to later in the talk, um, and the breaths of all the newborns that are being born at this very moment around the world, and the interbreath, and and also the people sitting right next to you who just breathed out what you're breathing in. You know, I mean, talk about intimacy, huh? This is us. We're breathing together. All right. So you stop to pay attention and you can't find a single thing that's not changing. Outwardly, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, light and dark, they're in constant change. from the Buddha. It seems that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. And so you start to see that life is actually a river, a process, and you can't go back. It's one way. You're going downstream. It's wild, isn't it? Right? And it's not just you, but I could name 28 civilizations, you know, the ancient Sumerians and the Mayans and the Aztec and, you know, the empire of Kublai Khan and the great Malian empire in Africa and the Greek and the Roman and the Egyptian and you remember the Portuguese? They had a big one, right? For a while, Spain and Portugal will divide the world, okay. And then the British empire in your very lifetime. Now those little foggy islands, you know, Um, nations, but it's not just nations, everything, Uh, your breath, your heart is pumping all the time, the cerebral spinal fluid is moving, the menstrual cycle, the phases of the moon, the stock market, and the circling, the twirling of the galaxy at every 250 million years, you're on this great big Ferris wheel of the arm of the Milky Way galaxy. You're on a ride. In fact, you are a ride, it turns out. Okay. And every day is new. Children were playing beside a river. They made castles of sand, the Ganges, says the Buddha. Each child defended theirs and said, this is mine, and they wouldn't let anybody touch it. When the castles are finished, you know, some would play together and some would strike another child, and then another one would say, he spoiled my castle, and all believing that they were their castles. And they played 
for a time and it began to get dark. And then they heard in the distance the voice from the village, their mother calling them, time to go home. And now no one cared what happened to their sandcastle. One child stamped and another pushed it over and they turned away and each went back to their house. It's kind of how it is, isn't it? Thich Nhat Hanh says, you are a cloud, rain cloud. You are a stone. This is not poetry. This is science. Your body is made of rain clouds and minerals of the earth, transformed. And, you know, all the time transformed. Millions of new cells in the course of my saying one sentence. So you are a living stream, a river, a process. My friend Michelle, who teaches little kids, used to teach kindergarten, first graders. She was teaching them about death because they're interested. They learn about it and what does this mean? You know, they don't think it's going to happen to them, but they are curious. And so, you know, they hear about people dying and things dying. And so she said, well, let's study death. You guys go out in the woods and bring back anything you can find that's died and we'll look at it. And they scurried out, as kids are, and they brought back broke dead branches and, you know, uh, leaves and um, maybe a little bone that they found of some animal that had died and all these various things that they found. And they made a big pile of it. And she said, so what do you think about this? And they said, well, look at this. Um, yeah, trees get their leaves and then the leaves die. And they understood it was natural. And, the branches are green and then at some time they die or animals are born and they die. She said, now suppose that there wasn't death, then what would happen? And one of the kids said, well, then there'd be more and more and more trees and there'd be no room for us. They understood that death was a part of the cycle to make room for something more to come. And so, yes, everything is impermanent, but also everything gets renewed. And so when we meditate, we can feel both the river of change in some way, very, very deeply. And then what's a wise relation to that? You could hold on, then you get what's called rope burn, right? There's the story of this man who writes, um, I'm a bricklayer by trade. And um, I had some serious injuries and the insurance company wrote me back and asked for further explanation because I had put poor planning in the box that said, what is the cause of your injuries? <laughs> so by way of explanation, I wrote to say that I'd finished uh, bricks on the third story of this building and having 500 pounds of bricks left over, I didn't want to carry them bound down by hand. So I put them in a barrel that was then attached to a pulley on the side of the building. And I went back down to the bottom and I untied the rope that was on this barrel, holding it tightly to slow the descent of the barrel full of bricks 
He says, I then refer you to my weight in box number four, which is 150 pounds. (laughs) Unmindful at this moment, I forgot to let go of the rope. On the second floor of the building, uh, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the broken collarbone. By the time I reached the third floor with my knuckles deep in the pulley, said, I realized this was not the optimal time to let go of the rope. (laughs) However, at that moment, the barrel hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of bricks, the barrel now weighed 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number four of the accident reporting form. I began a rather rapid descent down the side of the building. This explained the fractured ankle when I met the barrel on the second floor on the way down. Slowed slightly, the rest of my injuries were sustained on impact on the ground, and all because I forgot to let go of the rope. Right, so, the point here is that you live in a world of change, and you have two choices. You can hold on to it and get the rope burn, as I said, or you can trust in renewal, As Pablo Neruda, the great poet, says, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. That there is some renewal that brings you life every morning when you wake up from your deep sleep and your dreams, that sustains you and everyone you know, that pushes grass and weeds through the cracks in the sidewalk. There's a force of life that wants to renew itself. And so the river of impermanence is really an invitation to you to become present. And then, as Zen Master Suzuki says, when you realize, Suzuki Roshi, when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, you find yourself in nirvana. And Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.